All right, so welcome to Book Talk. I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir, and today I am talking with Margot Nash, who is the author of The Politics of Murder. Welcome to Book Talk, Margot. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. So why don't you start by telling us, in a nutshell, so to speak, what this book is about. Well, um, I'm an attorney, and uh, this book is about the wrongful conviction of a 15-year-old boy for the murder of his best friend's mother, um, who was at the time 37 years old and, uh, and a next-door neighbor. And he was wrongfully convicted of that murder, and it's a story, the true story of, of that uh, of that event. Right, because this is something that did happen here in Massachusetts in Somerville. Right. Not that long ago. 1995. 1995. July 23rd, 1995. And how did you come to be involved with this particular case? Not not long after the case uh, got started, I was uh, asked by the court to, if I would be willing to act as the the guardian ad litem for Eddie O'Brien, who was the uh, accused in the case, and he was 15 at the time, and uh, his attorneys had asked that a guardian ad litem be appointed just in case his parents had conflicts of interest. And you're pretty clear that he did not do this. What is the crime that he didn't do here? The crime that he didn't do was the brutal murder of this uh, woman, uh, in her home at approximately 8.30, quarter of nine, some, some, sometime uh, in, that, in that time frame uh, on a hot summer night, July 23rd, uh, where she was beaten over the course of three rooms. She was stabbed 98 times. She was undressed and redressed and, uh, and died uh, on her di- dining room floor having bled out. That's the crime he did not do. And pretty much in your book, as I read it, it's a pretty strong case that there's no way he could have possibly done it. Timeline-wise, let's not even you know go to motivation, and but opportunity, he had no opportunity to be available to commit this crime during that time by the Commonwealth's own evidence. There was a window that I figured out by going through the timeline, a window of maybe five to seven minutes uh, that would have, where he's not accounted for, where he would have had to leave his home, walk across the street to that home, commit this horrendous murder, and leave the home uh, after the murder with no no blood on him. Well, that's it. You know, we've all gotten sort of used to CSI and CSI-type shows, and I think everyone knows that that kind of number of stab wounds would have you drenched in blood, I suspect. Absolutely. The... the house was drenched in blood. There was blood everywhere, up and down the stairwell, in the hallway, in the dining room. The person who committed this crime used a a double-edged knife, uh, and as I said, she was stabbed 98 times, but uh, more than that, she was, she had, um, uh, she had excise, which are slicing um, wounds on her neck from ear to ear that were delivered post-mortem that didn't bleed that that Mm -hmm. so that the person who committed the crime spent a lot of time with this victim Uh, not undressing redressing stabbing probably pursuing right her 
bra was removed and it was stabbed several times, although there were no corresponding wounds to her actual breasts. So the bra was removed, it was stabbed, and then the bra was placed back on her body and her shirt was was put back on. It sounds like a lot of rage that this particular 15-year-old had no reason to feel. No, he had no animosity toward Janet Downing. Um, it, as I said, was his best friend's mother. He had known her since he was a toddler. He had spent every day of his life in her house or part of it. Uh, there was no nothing that he was upset with her about. So, Marco, you make an excellent case for it not being this person, the, um, this this young man. Um, so how do you explain the miscarriage of justice that happened? Is that part of this, this title, The Politics of Murder? Well, in every wrongful conviction case, you can always find three things. And one is a failure of the police to do their job correctly. And the second is the failure of the defense counsel to do his or her job correctly. And the third is the failure of the judicial system to uh, to catch these other failures, or it has, it has failed as well. So you have all three in every single wrongful conviction case. In this particular case, what was also at, in operation, although I did not understand that fully at the time, was a political movement to change the juvenile laws in Massachusetts, and they needed the perfect case to do that. And uh, being a racially sensitive town or state, um, they were reluctant to uh, do this in any of the murders that were occurring in Suffolk County, where the defendants were young black Afro-American males, um, having just been through uh, the know. Charles Stewart case was not long before this. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Where where a, a black man was wrongfully accused, and it turned out it was the husband who killed the wife. Exactly, which it is in most domestic cases as well. Um, and 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 similar to this case, I believe that this case is solvable. I believe that with the evidence that the police have, they can solve this case. And they can prove that Eddie didn't do it, but there is no interest to do that. There's still a lot of interest in maintaining uh, the myth that Eddie O'Brien was the perpetrator of this crime and belongs and belongs in prison where he is today. He's still in prison. So you were saying that there was this political climate because of changing laws um, around the juvenile justice system. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, there was a nationwide uh, scare. Uh, that people refer to as the super predator scare uh, that was being touted in, in many places. And that was that the inner cities were going to be taken over by uh, marauding gangs of juveniles who were going to, without conscience, who were going to mow down people and destroy our inner cities and um, gangs and things like that. And uh, Massachusetts had a very, very viable and effective juvenile court system. And it actually... Uh, was touted in the United States as being one of the best, but we had a governor who subscribed to this theory of the super predator come on its on his way, and we had a district attorney who also um, believed in that theory and also wanted to run for higher office. He wanted to run for attorney general and saw this as an opportunity to showcase his. Uh, commitment to law and order, and um, and become the uh, the attorney general of Massachusetts, and so he, the elected 
Middlesex district attorney named Tom Riley, biggest county in Massachusetts, uh, decided to try this juvenile case himself. Personally. Personally. Which is unusual. It's unheard of. Okay. It's unheard of. Uh, it was done once before. Newman Flanagan was a district attorney in Suffolk County. He tried a murder case of nurses who had been murdered in the back bay. Uh, it was a horrendous uh, failure for him, and it, it it ended his career. It's they're 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 administrators. They're no mm-hmm. longer. He was a trial counsel for years, but he had been in p- politics for many years and was not, he had many, many more talented people who could have tried this case. And in fact, he lost the first round. So you were, you were saying that these people were basing a lot of their political careers, unfortunately, on the back of this 15 year old boy who didn't do anything. Are some of these players still around? Is this, yes, is this one of the reasons fact, that you were saying that there's not a lot of interest in reopening the case? Yes. The um, governor at the time was William Weld. He was a Republican governor, but very well liked and um, and uh, got 77 percent of the popular vote, which is unheard of. And Massachusetts is a Democratic state and always has been. But uh, he is currently back in Massachusetts and is about to announce his candidacy for president, the president of the United States for 2020. Um, The district attorney, Tom Riley, did succeed in getting that attorney general um, position, then tried to go for the governorship and lost that race and now is in private practice uh, in a big firm in uh, downtown Boston. He's still around. They are still very invested, I believe, in maintaining this conviction without raising the specter of wrongdoing. That would open too many closets, it seems. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so you got involved in this because you were the guardian ad litem for Eddie O'Brien for this boy, right. um, and you were saying that one of the three problems is around the defense counsel. So you had an opportunity to observe the defense counsel and felt like he was not doing an adequate job as well. I felt like he was not doing an adequate job, <clears throat> although he had a, a wonderful reputation and was well-known and very highly paid. Um, but And I had never done a murder case. I'd never tried a murder case, so I assumed he was the expert and he knew what he was doing. I didn't feel he was particularly prepared uh, at, at these hearings. Um, I, I, I had lots of questions at the time, but it wasn't until I wrote the book that I really came to see how much he had failed Eddie. So let's talk a little bit about the book then. How did you come to go from having done this case many years ago um, to to deciding to write a book about it? How did that happen? Well, I maintained contact with Eddie and with his family over the last 20-some years. And I was visiting Eddie at his uh, prison, which was at the time the max, Supermax at Shirley, Massachusetts, and it was the 20th anniversary of his incarceration. It was uh, 2015, mm-hmm. and he was uh, incarcerated in 1995. And he asked me if I would write the true story of what really happened that night, and uh, and I agreed to do that. So what was the process like? What did you do next? Go home and say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? <laughs> Exactly. I had never written a book. I had never thought about writing a book, although I've written things all my life and uh, and I enjoy writing. I had never 
Uh, I didn't know how to put a book together. I didn't know what one did, and, uh, but I I was very committed to doing this. And the first thing I did was to have Eddie sign releases of information and have all of his legal files sent to my house. Which were substantial, as I recall you telling yes. me. 37 uh, bankers' cartons. They were floor-to-ceiling in my living room, 37 I had never seen a file that large in my life, and um, that's, I commenced by starting to first uh, inventory everything that was in every box, and then to uh, go through all of these uh, voluminous files for the information I was going to need. And how do we get from there to book? Uh, what... The way that I organized myself around it, because it seemed so overwhelming at the time, was that I just knew that what I had to do was to get as much information as I could about the case onto paper, mm -hmm. and that sorting it out later, organizing it later, was another chore, that I couldn't worry about that right. now, and just getting it on paper. And I knew, I had all, I the minute that I agreed to do the book, I had the book's name in my mind. It just came to me, and I knew, I said to Eddie, I know what I'm going to call it already, The Politics of Murder. And um, I and I knew how I wanted it to, to start. I wanted it to start with Eddie on in the morning of, of, of July 23rd, 1995, to give you a view of what this... Boy, he was a he was a kid. Yeah, kid's life was like on a given Sunday in July, and um, and from there take you to this horrendous, uh, just unthinkable act that occurred not too long after that. And so what I did was I I started with with having Eddie uh, re recite to me the st same story he told me. Um, 20 years before that about where he was and what he did and what he remembers about those things and uh, to start to write the story of the day from his point of view. Um, and then I started, and then I gathered all of the forensic reports, all the scientific reports, the police reports, and I organized them into police reports, police interviews, uh, forensic reports, lab reports, and then I uh, began to read all of those reports and learn things that I had no idea existed. I had no idea that Eddie's DNA was excluded from the so-called murder weapon, the murder weapon that the Commonwealth called the murder weapon, that it was the DNA of an unknown male, and Eddie was excluded from that. I had no idea that the fingernails of Janet Downing um, showed that uh, that uh, there was unknown male DNA and her blood in that under those fingernails, but not Eddie's. Uh, and it was at that things point, that had they come up at trial would, would have been a game changer. Exactly, would have changed the whole. Could have, would have, and should have changed the outcome mm -hmm. of the trial. Mm -hmm. Were never introduced uh, into evidence in 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 the proper way. Uh, how did you deal with your feelings around that? Because by now you've gotten close to this young man, your friends, um, you were at some level part of the proceedings, even though you really had no, no role in them. I cannot imagine your feelings at that point of rage or sorrow or helplessness or any of those things. What was going on for you? My first reaction was disbelief. How can this be? How can this be dated before the trial, that means defense counsel had it. Why did he never mention it? Right. And then I 
realized, well, because he never got an expert to advise him and he didn't have an expert to put this evidence on. And why didn't he have an expert? And then I started to unravel um, the failures that took place in the defense and, uh, and the, frankly, the uh, misguided or misinformation that was given by the uh, Commonwealth regarding the DNA. I mean, it, it was totally presented in a way that was not reflective of what I was reading in these reports. It's amazing. So um, I was, yes, I was shocked. I was disbelieved. Then I was shocked. Then I was furious. And then I tried to think, how am I going to tell this to Eddie? How am I going to tell him that this evidence was all available to his counsel and did not get presented? Because to get a new trial, you have to have new evidence. And it has to. Oh, interesting. And yeah. so his hope would be to get a new trial, to have his conviction overturned. But if the court determines, well, this evidence was all available to right. him, and his defense counsel made a decision not to use it, he's not going to get a new trial. He's lost his bid for a new uh, trial. Uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time trying to think about how it could be fashioned in a way that. Um, uh, in a way that it could be deemed new evidence and things like that. And were you successful in that? I well, it has it, his appeal has yet to be filed, but I think that there is a very strong argument for that. Yes. All right. So let's go back to the book. So you you get all this information, sort of sucked it out of these boxes and into your pages. Mm -hmm. Um, was that difficult for you? Because as you say, you've done a lot of writing, but you had never written a book. It wasn't, you know, what I did, and I also, of course, I had the transcripts. There were two juvenile hearings where it was, where, uh, the, the question was, should Eddie be tried as a juvenile or an adult? The first one, the Commonwealth lost, and they determined he should be kept in the juvenile court. The Supreme Court overturned that, um, for no reason, and, and ordered a second hearing be done and appointed a different judge to that hearing. So there were two hearings. And of course, at the second one, surprise, 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 he was found to be uh, not amenable to rehabilitation in the juvenile system and should be tried as an adult. Then there was the adult trial. Um, so I had all of those transcripts, plus the motion hearing transcripts and all the pretrial uh, transcripts. And what I decided at that point was to start organizing my writing around the transcripts. So first, the first hearing, then the second hearing, then the days of trial. So that made that it had its own organic um, uh, outline in, in that way. Uh, there was way, way more information that I knew would be in the book. But as I said, at that point, I knew I wanted to get it all in there so I could determine what was important and what wasn't. So you must have ended up with something fairly massive, I would guess. I, I would say it was probably <laughs> double the size of the book um, when I finished, uh, double the size of the, of the edited manuscript. Mm -hmm. And so what did you learn through this writing process? Did it change any of your feelings about the material you had read? Did it change any of your feelings about yourself as a writer? What, what were some of the things that, that, that happened for you? One of the things that happened for me that I didn't expect was that it was not difficult. Mm -hmm. The writing flowed and that um, once I would start writing, I couldn't stop. And I was... Um, 
That's a great feeling. I've never great feeling. I have never felt it before. Believe <laughs> me, I've struggled with writing and struggled, and and I I, I accomplish it, but with much uh, difficulty sometimes. And I, I'm even talking about briefs and things like that, which I've written hundreds of. You know, mm-hmm. even those can be very different difficult. Um, but this manuscript just flowed, and I would I literally worked on it. 12 hours a day, seven days a week for seven months. And and I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and, and get right back to it. And uh, uh, and I was just amazed at how how much it, it, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't write it fast enough, it felt like. Did the process of creating this book teach you anything about yourself or anything that listeners might be able to I I, I to think the thing it. that it taught me about myself is that you know that I'm more afraid of something before I try it uh-huh. <laughs> and that uh, and that I I can often talk myself out of trying something because of my fear of not being able to accomplish it but on this I had made a, a commitment to Eddie whether it was good bad or indifferent what I ended up with this manuscript I'd made that commitment and, and and that's what I owed him. That's what I felt I owed him to live up to that commitment. And and actually, we had we had talked about my trying to do this within a year's time, and then mm. finding a publisher and all of that. And uh, um, and you did. I did. Mm-hmm. I did. I I started writing it in August. I got the files in July of two thousand and fifteen. And I started writing in August of 2015, and it was published in November of 2016. There you go. The publisher is Wild Blue Press. Um, do they do a lot of books about crimes, or is that is that a specialty of theirs? That's a specialty of theirs. They mm-hmm. do a lot of true crime uh, writing. As a matter of fact, um, the one of the owners or the the founders of the press uh, is a. Um, a New York Times best-selling crime writer and journalist. Um, they do a lot of those books. They do a lot of other things too, but mm-hmm. that is something that they uh, that they specialize in. Although, to be fair, I I don't really, in my mind, classify this as a true crime novel. I know that it probably is when people put it on bookshelves and libraries and bookshops and so on. But it really goes beyond that sort of perverse need to sort of look at things um, that are terrible that have happened. This is really looking at something that's terrible that happened that is probably still going on today in courtrooms and in prisons. And, um, and it really transcends, I think that genre completely. Yeah. It's not really looking at the crime. It's looking at the system and it's looking how it's, it's looking at how somebody who is 100% completely innocent and 15 years old can end up spending his life in jail for something he did not do and how the system, the many systems, failed him. Right. So where is Eddie now? What's the situation? He has just been moved from the Supermax, which is, you know, a 23-hour-day lockdown situation uh, with very little contact visits and things like that, to a minimum security, which should have happened three years ago when the United States Supreme Court said that juveniles who were given sentences of life without parole, uh, that was unconstitutional. It violated the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. All the juveniles in Massachusetts at that time were, were reclassified 
and uh, given life with the possibility of parole and reclassified to minimum security prisons. Except uh, he wasn't. He was not. He stayed in Shirley. He filed a lawsuit regarding it. The lawsuit is still pending, but after three years, he was finally the last one to get transferred. So he's two weeks ago, he just moved, and he just uh, celebrated his 38th birthday in his new prison. And so he's been in jail for 23 years since he was 15 years old. So much, so much longer than he was outside, which yes. seems a particular tragedy, doesn't it? His whole life has been in there. Right. Yeah. And what about his case? Is there anything that's going to drive it forward at this point? Or I, I personally, I frankly believe that the only thing that's going to move this case, because there is such... Um, uh, a strong political component to it and a uh, judicial integrity component to it is publicity. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that um, that the court, uh, as, it's, as it is constituted right now, of Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, is going to be apt to do very much with this case, uh, despite what... Um, irregularities I have discovered in, in the process. Uh, I believe that either the federal prison or the U.S. Supreme Court may do something with it, but I think publicity to, uh, to of people saying, this is wrong, he deserves another chance, let's give him a, a, a new trial. What do you have to lose? What are you so afraid of if you're so convinced that he was uh, that he was guilty. So if there's someone listening to this podcast now, they think, what can I do? What can they do? Well, you can um, write to me. Um, at, uh, you, I have a website called The Politics of Murder. Uh, I also have a website called margonash.com where I have a defense fund that I had been raising money for and I'm not doing that currently. We raised a lot of money using that now for various investigative processes and um, but but my email is on both of those websites, or it's Mar margonashauthor at gmail.com, and I will be back in touch with you uh, if you'd like to help in any way. Terrific. Well, the book is The Politics of Murder, The Power and Ambition Behind the Altar Boy Murder Case, and the author is Margot Nash. Thank you so much for being on Book Talk with me. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening in. This is Jeanette de Beauvoir. This has been Book Talk, and I hope to see you here again soon.